0: Amen. Thanks, Austin. Now's your chance. You just heard Austin uh, let the cat out of the bag that Drew's not standing here. So if you want to go, now's your chance. That's a joke. Um, Excuse me. We're taking a week away from 1 Samuel uh, on purpose, of course. We're in the middle of a series on Samuel. We're thinking through the theme of God's presence with his people. Uh, And as we've been taking these various scenes, we've been looking at long pieces of the story Of David and Saul, and even Jonathan's role as well. Uh, It was a little self serving. At least people took it that way. I texted a few friends a couple weeks ago. I I texted them uh, the link to The Kingmaker, which was the friendship sermon uh, from David and Jonathan. And I said, This is great. Become a Jonathan type of friend. And they were like, LOL. I thought that was funnier than y'all did. But anyway, uh, it really is a great sermon. And that subject is something we all need desperately, and Jonathan's role in the story is worth meditating on uh, as well. We've been looking at David's rise and Saul's fall, and last week, the story of David's unwillingness to kill Saul, David's ability to love an on-again, off-again enemy. Now, you may or may not be aware, especially if you're new to the Bible and new to Christianity, that uh, a lot of the book of Psalms was written by David, and I would encourage you, even before I read Psalm 57, the uh, Pew Bible page number is in your worship folder, and if you can get your hands on a Pew Bible, you'll see it there, page 477, uh, and I would encourage you to look at it there uh, as I read it uh, here in just a minute, and I'll give you a little bit more of the reason for that. David was a musician. Uh, For example, Saul had him play for him to soothe him. He was a composer of songs or psalms uh, as we know them, but these psalms are often prayers as well. They kind of double uh, for both a prayer and a song, uh, and we use them in kind of interchangeable ways, uh, even as uh, Christians. Now, something else you might not know is that many of the psalms correspond to historical events in David's life, and that's why I wanted you to read it from Uh, the Pew Bible, because if you go back and you look at Psalm 51, uh, it says uh, a Psalm of David when Nathan went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. There's a historical marker there. The same with Psalm 52, Psalm 54, 56, and then our Psalm today, uh, 57. So while we have the narrative histories of the events in Samuel, we also have a real-time window into the interior life, into the heart of David while these events are happening isn't that cool how the bible does that many of the psalms give us what's going on under the hood of david's heart so to speak so in the midst of his life which was we can all agree pretty eventful pretty exhausting pretty overwhelming it we we see how he responds to his circumstances his enemies his own faith and his emotions it's all there right So last week, you remember, we left David, 1 Samuel 24, verse 22, the writer says, Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold, and the word is refuge, and it's a word that's used over and over again in the Psalms today is one such example. So let me read Psalm 57, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, which we presume is the tune, a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you O Lord among the peoples I will sing praises to you among the nations for your steadfast love is great to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds be exalted O God above the heavens let your glory be over all the earth as you say with me this is God's word the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever now uh, there you see. I read the the, the historical notation uh, on purpose, and you see this in the Psalms again and again. Not just in these couple th- in the in the fifties here, but throughout. Uh, hopefully, going forward, you'll you'll take more notice of that, right? Because and then go back and pick up uh, the uh, the story, uh, and it it helps enhance the Psalm, helps enhance what's going on in David's life when he's on the run, when he's in the wilderness with. Saul in hot pursuit. And in the previous psalm, in fact, uh, Psalms 56, it recounts David in Gath, which is a Philistine town, and he finds himself alone. Following that, he leaves Gath. He finds this cave in Adullam, and that's where we think Psalm 57 was most likely composed, okay? So my question to you as we uh, look at this psalm this morning is how do you typically manage yourself when life is overwhelming? How do you manage yourself? Habits, traits that tend to bubble to the surface, you know what they are. I want to go back uh, just to refer you to the series we did over the summer. It was called A Godward Life. For me, incidentally, it's easily in the top three sermon series in 15 years that Redeemer has produced. Fan-freaking-tastic. Okay? Okay. In the Psalms, you find the full range of human emotions. You find models for praying. You find beautiful imagery, thoughts, words, right? The Psalms are about how to do life with God, how you increase your knowledge of God, which is eternal life, to increase your experience of him, your communion with him. And there's a shorthand for what you find over and over again in the Psalms. And Drew talked about this. in is the very first sermon on Psalm 42 all the way back in June. He said, this is the shorthand. Life is a big mess, This is how I feel about it, but God. And we're going to kind of follow that rubric this morning. Learning the skill, learning the craft of how to think about your feelings and your circumstances in real time. I can't emphasize that enough. These are psalms being written by David in real time. And the goal for the Godward life is that you can think in real time so that your theology comes to impact you. There's no avoiding the crises of life. Life is Uh, We live life, rather, in a fallen world, and yet stayed on God, faith can sustain because it's not the faith itself, it's the object of the faith that matters, right? Another way to think about the Psalms and how we can make them our, our own is to ask these questions, what am I facing? How do I feel about it? What do I want to see God do, right? There's no sugarcoating the Psalms. You have enemy talk all over the Psalms. One of the reasons we're picking this up on the heels of talking about how to love enemies. One scholar counted 94 various terms to describe enemies throughout the Psalms. But they also keep us from falling off the road of faith into the extreme of either seeing enemies everywhere. Everyone's an enemy. Everyone's terrible. Them, them, them is the problem. Or not wanting to think of anyone as an enemy. Because, you know, we we don't want to be mean. But enemy talk is everywhere. We see it in Psalm fifty. Seven, right? There is no indifference in the Psalms and particularly in David's Psalms to the harsh realities of life. The world really is full of broken people, full of dark forces, and full of harsh conditions. But God, don't forget. And I'm going to come back to that again and again. So in your worship folder, there's an outline. You'll see three points. These are three lenses through which uh, I I hope to help us look at this psalm, okay? On the run, in the cave, at the cross. There's three views to how faithing is happening for David. Because you normally think, and you might use the word faith as a noun a lot of times, right? I want you to turn it into a English teachers, you'll be so proud of me. Faithing, a participle. Turn it into a participle. Faithing, be like, the example of a sentence would be, faithing is fun, Yeah, I thought y'all would get a kick out of that one. How about this? Faithing is hard. That's probably more accurate, right? So we're seeing how David does faithing. Where does he get the ability to faith in the midst of a life full of hardships? A statement that was made over the summer has stuck with me. Living a Godward life consists in resolving the emotional tension of living in a fallen world through theological reflection, okay? You resolve the tension by reflecting on your theology. It doesn't necessarily mean the emotions will disappear, but it does mean that a Godwardness can lessen the tension. So first, on the run. I want you to think about David's emotional state. What's he been through? Well, don't forget, back in 1 Samuel 16, he was anointed. Samuel anointed him. Remember the whole, God doesn't see as man sees. God looks on the heart, man looks on the appearance. He's anointed, but he's homeless. He's hiding. He's full of fear. He's asking questions like, "Am I safe?" He's probably at this point in his life reeling from guilt because he came to find out that when he went to Ahimelech, one of the priests, and he and he got some uh, bread to um, uh, nourish he and his fighters that. A scumbag was in the room and went and told Saul, that scumbag's name is Doeg, you can read about him in another psalm even, and he goes back and Saul goes and kills 84 priests of Nob and their families because of David. Probably full of guilt, probably unsure of when the fugitive status is gonna end. Now, how much sleep do you think he's getting? Have you ever tried sleeping in a cave? I mean, sometimes we go hiking and we sleep next to caves, on a pad, on another pad, on a sleeping pad, on a sleeping bag. David's got nothing, right? I I told you a long time ago, I was reading uh, the Lord of the Rings. I finished it. Yes, thank you. Um, I needed your uh, woo-hoo for for that. It's a a big task, right? But think about this, and even from the the, uh, movies, the fellowship is being chased by these black riders, by the forces of Mordor. How much sleep were they getting? Right, in verse three, David says that uh, he describes his enemies as in hot pursuit; those who are hotly pursuing me. Now, think about his location. He's in the middle of nowhere. But here is the truth of what's happening, and this is from Eugene Peterson, wrote a great book on David's life. Uh, we've listed it for the resources or in the resources for you. It's called leap over a wall, but he says this: the wilderness was the dictionary in which David looked up the word refuge. The meaning he found given indicated that refuge has mostly to do with God. And in the Old Testament uh, stories, the word almost always referred to a specific place, like a rock or the safety of a walled city. But in the Psalms, especially with David, the word loses all geographical elements and any association with flight but it gains in return an exclusive reference to Yahweh in the sense that a fundamental decision for Yahweh over and above anything and anyone else comes to David, especially in the face of specific dangers and temptations. David's running for his life led him to find life in God, his refuge. Andrew Peterson describes God this way in one of his songs. This is your, my oasis, The eye of the hurricane. You're a light in the forest. I'm a lost boy out in the trees. You're my one safe place. You know what the eye of a hurricane is like, don't you? It's the one safe place in the middle of this terror on either side. Actually, on every side. And you're in the middle. Hidden and safe. Albeit briefly, right? Right? So while Saul was the occasion for David's being in the wilderness, Saul neither defined nor dominated the wilderness for David. The wilderness was full of God, his refuge, not full of Saul, his enemy. Now David is clearly in danger, right? Physical danger, to be sure. But notice what he says in verse 1. The very first thing he says is regarding his soul. He calls the Lord a refuge for his soul. And what we learn is that for David, soul care was priority one. This is a lesson for us. Soul care is priority one. He's clearly in danger. Where are you in danger? Where are you overwhelmed and weary? Interior life soul care must be priority one. He pays attention to his soul and his heart, and that is what enables him to face the physical dangers and everything else that came with them. Because circumstances for David would be up and down. The storms of life would come and go. But if his soul didn't have God as a refuge, he was sunk. He says, be merciful to me. In you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Have you ever experienced a storm of destruction? Better yet, have you ever gone from being exposed in a storm of destruction to be to, to finding refuge. Uh, some of you may remember this little hurricane we had back in 2004. It was called Charlie. And I remember sitting in the hallway of my in-law's home in Lake Wales, listening to the shingles on the roof go flying off. We didn't know what that was for a little bit. Finally, somebody said, I think those are the shingles. Nice. But thankfully, we were snug as a bug in a rug in the hallway, right? Or uh, I spent a lot of time on golf courses uh, as a kid, and there were many, many a summer thunderstorm that I got caught in and found myself running because when you're a teenager, you can't use a golf cart to play golf. You have to walk. And so usually it'd be like on number 14, way out there on the very edge of the golf course property, and here comes a thunderstorm. And, you know, I'm 14 and stupid. It's going to pass. And then I get caught in it. And I find myself running to a shelter, you know, one of those shelters that has lightning rods on the top of it. And, man, what's going on inside of you? When you find a refuge, when you get to shelter, and the storms of destruction are passing by, oh, man, it's so relieving, right? Well, being on the run, being in the wilderness, the need for faith is a core theme in the biblical story. Because in the wilderness, there are lots of enemies, right? Dangers abound. Lions and tigers and bears. Yeah, there you go. It's waiting for it. The New Testament links the experience of the church. This is important for us. It links the experience of the church as a pilgrim people in the world or in the wilderness, awaiting the ultimate rescue and promised land of a new heavens and earth with the experience of Israel in the wilderness. See, our manna is the word of God. Our Passover sacrifice is celebrated through the communion bread and wine. We wander with a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night in the person and work of the Holy Spirit who makes his home within us. So there's a link up to the way Israel was experiencing the wilderness and how we continue to, on our merry way, (laughs) To, uh, to the promised land, experience the wilderness. And individually as Christians, our experience is similar to David, right? Not unlike Saul's hot pursuit of David, we have an enemy. We have an enemy who's prowling around like a lion seeking to devour us. We have enemies that crouch in the grass, hiding, desiring us, sin, and its many offspring, like guilt and fear, pride, envy, shame, But too often, though, we feel the exposure of those effects naked in the elements of the wild, and we hide too. We look for refuges too, only our refuges are more often like the man and the woman on the first few pages of the Bible. Our our, uh, strategy is to sew a few leaves together, hope that God doesn't find us, hope that you don't find me out. But not with David. He's looking at all dead in the face, but God. And in the cave, there in the cave, he finds communion. Uh, Another writer says this. Let's be clear about the purpose of all this enemy language in the Psalms. It reminds us that the violent and sinful ways of human beings, including our own, need to be named so that God can step in and do something about it. Praying against Naming our enemies is not a license to do violence to others or indulge our desire to call anyone we simply don't like an enemy. It is instead a way of getting us talking to God. The goal is our healing, not our self-gratification. It's our helplessness, our rage, our disappointment, our sorrows. We take those to God and we ask him to act because he alone is righteous. And just. And so, what you find in David is that no matter what danger or overwhelming circumstance he is facing, he starts and ends with God. His faith is the posture from which he moves out. He doesn't start with circumstances and end with finding God the refuge. He starts with God, with his mercy, look at verse 1, and then faces his enemies, his circumstances, the harshness of his life. And then he ends, but God. Just a small little point here. Where is David when the psalm begins? Where is he when it ends? He hasn't moved. He's still in the cave. He's still on the run. And in the same way that a washcloth is weighed down by water, and in order to sort of free it, right, you've got to wring it out to lighten it up, what we find in David's life is that whenever he's weighed down by life, psalms are wrung out of him. Okay, Prayer flows out of his heart. Praise lightens his burdens. Psalm 94, verse 19. We read it a few weeks ago in community Bible reading on a Saturday. When the cares of my heart are many, what? Your consolations. Cheer my soul. Right? Now, I want you to see verse 4 and verse 6. Every time David turns inward, whenever he starts to remind himself of how bad things are, How treacherous his circumstances are. When self-pity and even self-justification might begin to creep in in his soul, creep up in his soul. Look at at verse four. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. I mean, that's pretty bad. Uh, The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords, you can feel it. And where does he go from there? Immediately. The exalted God, right? He starts thinking about God. He, he does the same thing in, in, uh, in verse six. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down, right? He starts to go there. The worry, the grief, the anger, the disappointment, the annoyances, not shy away from facing them, but always to shout back at them. The truth of our theology. That's what verses 5 and 11 are. You notice how there's exclamation points in your Bible in verses 5 and 11? Now, I don't know enough to uh, Hebrew. I mean, I took a couple classes, but let's be honest. It was a long time ago, and I don't even remember what grade I got. But uh, So I don't know if there's exclamation points in the original language. Let's just, for argument's sake, say that there are. Do you ever use exclamation points in texting? I have a friend who likes to use them a lot, a male friend. It's not Drew. Uh, And I have to remind him sometimes, why are you yelling at me while you're texting me? David is yelling at his heart. Listen here, heart. While it might be so that I'm sitting here in the the middle of fiery beasts, and these, these people are around me whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords, do you know any people like that? Do you have any friends like that? Are you under the weight of people who you feel like are against you like that? He is yelling. He says, listen here, heart. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, right? He, he's being honest, but it's almost like he could keep going down the dark hole, but he stops himself. He takes himself by the scruff of the neck, and he says to his heart, not listen here, heart. He's not talking to himself in verses 5 and 11. He talks to God. He talks to himself, God, the whole universe, the exalted God, right? While the storms of destruction are raging in the midst of lions, when people are in hot pursuit with his soul bowed down, he is singing. How? Well, the same way Paul and Silas were singing and praying at the prison in Philippi. Maybe they were singing Psalm 57. I don't know. But how could they sing? Well, the same reason David could sing, because God alone defined and dominated their reality. Look at verses 7 to 9. David goes one step further. He does start talking about himself and to himself. He says, oh, God, my heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. No, that's not a typo. He says it twice. Which means, probably pretty important, probably needed to remind himself of that. See, in the cave, faithing is buoying up David's heart. He says his heart is steadfast, like the love of God for him is steadfast. God's steadfastness is, well, the source of David's declaration. See, the opposite of steadfast is faithless, or fickle, or wavering. And if David was doing faith in light of his circumstances, which were changing constantly, he would be anything but steadfast. But no, he's praying. He's singing in light of his theology. Because in the refuge of God, in in God himself, he finds a reality that's full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, you might be in the midst of a significant storm. You might be being pursued by an enemy, a temporary one or maybe a more long-term one. And you've come today with a bowed-down soul. David describes that here, downtrodden. And you may say, you know, good for David and Paul and Silas, but I don't feel like singing. I don't feel hopeful or full of faith. In the chapter on saving faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, this faith, that is saving faith, is different in degrees, weak or strong, maybe often in many ways assailed or attacked and weakened, but gets the victory. And then there's a colon, meaning how does it get the victory? Growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. That's how it gets the victory. And if he's the author and finisher, as we will read actually tomorrow in community Bible reading in Hebrews 12, listen to these words from a friend of mine this week as they reflected on Hebrews chapter 10, which we read on Thursday, and I was so struck by this in thinking about this psalm, they said this, I don't have to always feel hopeful. I can confess the truth of our hope despite my feelings, and it's not contradictory, and it's not less than feeling hopeful. He who promised is faithful, Hebrews 10 says. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to secure our forgiveness through his life, obedience, death, and resurrection. I thought that was so helpful. I hope it encourages you, especially if you are coming in here not feeling hopeful, right? David says, your steadfast love at this moment in the cave is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness is at this moment in the cave great to the clouds. He's saying in the cave, on the run, in the wilderness, enemies in hot pursuit, his theological reflection is in real time moving his heart to faith helping him resolve this tension of living in the overwhelming, wearying times of life. Well, that was David, right? What about you? For us, the source of faith is at the cross. That's where I want to finish. We have the person and work of Jesus complete. David can only look forward to that. And David might have penned this psalm thousands of years before Jesus, but we get to read it knowing, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story, right? So let's finish at the cross In the greatest crisis of his life, what was Jesus doing? If you look at his statements from the cross, there are a number from the Psalms. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus Christ is singing his way to hell. Physical torture, verbal lashing, mockery, loneliness, and still, he too begins, And ends with God. When you ring Jesus out, he's dripping with faith. And the wonder of Christianity is that he promises you and I, if we are in Christ through his spirit, that same faith. And this is where I want to take you back where we finish with the assurance. In Lamentations chapter three. So if you look back there in your worship folder, (coughs) excuse me, what event, what season, what struggle Or frustration is your soul continually remembering and causing you to be bowed down? You see what the writer says there? He says, remember my affliction, my wanderings, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Now, if you just stop there, what's the state of things? Bad, real bad. Hopeless, right? What is causing you to be bowed down, beat down? Someone or something that is discouraging you. The author of Lamentations shows us what talking to our heart looks like. Faithing in affliction. Facing an enemy. How to activate faith. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones called it, right? Activating our faith. How do do you do it? Well, you talk to your heart in defiant faith. And it's to call to mind. The words of God. The words about God. This I call to mind, he says. And therefore, I get hope calling it to mind, thinking through it, reflecting on who God is, brings the hope. And here is the truth. Jesus is the proof that this is true. United to him, in him, his faith becomes your faith. His steadfastness becomes yours by his spirit living in you because he is the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. He is the mercies of the Lord that never come to an end. Okay. If you go back to verse three of Psalm 57, David says something about God here. David had a sense of God's coming and ultimate deliverance in Jesus. Not a full sense, of course. He couldn't see the future or anything, but he knew the promises of God to his people. He knew the stories of the patriarchs and the wilderness wanderings of his ancestors. So if you read verse 3, Psalm 57, verse 3 now, read it in light of Jesus Christ. Read it. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus said he was sent by the Father. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus publicly shamed Satan and sin by triumphing over them, defeating death. Jesus said, no greater love is there than someone lay down his life for his friends. He's God's steadfast love and faithfulness sent out. In Jesus, his faithfulness and justice work together to forgive And cleanse us. Now read that verse in light of the brokenness of life, or the pain of your circumstances, or the disappointments, or the fears of the last week. Read verse 3 now. The verse doesn't answer the question, when. David just says, God will, He will, He will. So it answers the question: not when, but will. Remember. Where is David writing this? David shows us what faithing in the wilderness surrounded by enemies looks like. He declares God's future, grace, God's future grace is based on the past, God's faithful past, despite the storms of destruction and the hot pursuit of those who want him dead. The Psalms are the songs of David and later David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. And so the takeaway is, will you make these your own? See it there the outline? Make these songs your own. That'd be my exhortation to you, my encouragement to you. They'll lead you into a Godward life, I promise. Uh, I'm going to close like we uh, typically do with uh, these words from a hymn. This is uh, words from a hymn by John Newton. It's so good. Uh, And I'm going to try to read it because there's an exclamation point. So he's yelling at us. He says, be gone, unbelief. My Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer, let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that because you endured the storm, uh, the storm of the uh, eternal cup of uh, wrath uh, for us, uh, we can, with you now in our vessel, in our ship, in our boat, sometimes it feels like a rickety, half-put-together canoe, and sometimes it feels like we're on a, a cruise ship or a Navy destroyer, and everywhere in between. But wherever we, whatever state we feel our vessel is in, today we know that we can smile at the storm with you there. Uh, And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that that is possible only because of your work as the author and finisher of our faith. And we pray now as we sing that you would activate faith in us by your spirit and continue to have that faith activating into tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the day after that, that you might receive honor and glory through us. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, So... The goal of the service is that you would leave uh, full of hope, full of faith, uh, because of the promises of God to us that are ours in the personal work of Jesus. So uh, grab hold onto these words uh, so that uh, whatever comes to you this week, uh, when it starts to ring you, right, when it starts to ring you out, what drips out over yourself and those around you is faith, right, hope, uh, and praise to God much like we experienced with David. So receive these words. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.